You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, I'm Deep Tran. I'm Jose Solis. And we're both writers at American Theatre Magazine, and we're your token theatre friends. People who go see way too much theatre and like to talk about it afterwards. And what, by the way, to talk about theatre then with your friend. Right, Jose? Yes. What, what, what have you been up to, Mr. Oh, Drama Desk Nominator? I'm just exhausted all the time, because, yes, I'm exhausted, but happy to be here. Well... Today, we're going to be talking about three shows that we've seen recently. Then we'll have an interview with Daphne Rubin Vega and Giselle Jimenez, who will talk about their musical, Miss You Like Hell. The cast album is out now. And for the final segment of the show, Jose and I will talk about an article that recently came out written by Pulitzer winner Chiara Alegria Hudes about why she is taking a break from theater and the emotional labor that people of color have to do when working in predominantly white institutions. Fun stuff ahead, right, Jose? I'm already depressed. <laughs> Especially because we just had a little debrief before we started recording and we realized we don't feel passionate about any of the stuff that we saw. So this may be a bummer of an episode, everybody. No, because the interview with... Except for yeah. Daphne Rubin Vega, even though she was in Red, she is a ray of sunshine. And she does not make... Bummer does not even, is not even included with her. And Giselle Jimenez is also a soon-to-be, I think, ray of sunshine is going to be as bright as Daphne at some point. They're both wonderful. So yeah, stick around. We promise that the interview will not be a bummer. Yes. So to start off, what are what shows did we see this week? We saw Bernhardt Hamlet at Roundabout Theatre Company. We also saw the Revolving Cycles at the Playwrights Realm and Antigone in Ferguson at Harlem Stage. Three shows at wildly different price points. We don't usually pick shows around a certain theme or with a certain aesthetic. We just pick whatever is opening around the time that we record our episodes and have a long enough run that people can see it. But I feel like what tied all the three all the shows together this week is like they're kind of they're ambitious projects that have a little bit of a, of a messiness to them. Like, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. It's not refined. So to start off with, our first messy play is Bernhardt Hamlet by Teresa Rebeck. What is it about, Jose? In 1897, Sarah Bernhardt was probably the world's most famous actress. And she decided that she had enough playing like ingenues and like, you know, the parts that were being written for women back then, which aren't that different from the parts that are given to women nowadays. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she decided that she was going to play Hamlet. So Teresa Rebeck's play is about what happens when she wants to do her Hamlet and how people, how the men are telling her not to do it because she's going to be terrible and... It's against nature. Yes. Oh, God, oh gross. Poor, yeah. And Hamlet isn't something that should be done by, by women. And it's about sexism, basically, with beautiful costumes and Janet McTeer as Sarah Bernhardt. Yes. And fun fact, this is not the first time Janet McTeer has played a, a character that was traditionally played by a man. She, in this 
in this play, she's playing Sarah Bernhardt playing Hamlet. So in 2016, I believe it was, Jan McTeer played Petruchio in an all-female version of The Taming of the Shrew, which, while still problematic, made it less problematic than usual. So she wears pants very well. Would you say that, Jose? And she was also nominated for an Oscar for Albert Knobs, where she also played a cross-dressing woman, a woman who lived her life as a man in Ireland. Yeah, and she's she was great. Did you have you watched no, Albert Knobs? No, no. She's incredible in that movie. And there's yeah, there's definitely a thread in the kinds of parts that she uh, chooses uh, in a way, even though it's obviously not the same. But when she did Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway a couple of years ago, it's also that thing where she's attracted to playing characters that are that have very masculine forces. And she tries to subvert that. Mm-hmm. And I think she's spectacular. She was spectacular in this show. Yes. She was the best part of this very mediocre, unfocused show. Because what I love, uh, well, we'll start with the, what I liked about it. What I loved was that, I mean, she's front and center, and so she is able to play her, play Sarah Bernhardt playing Hamlet. So we get to see her do it, and you, we could see the possibilities of what a Jag McTeer or a female Hamlet would be like. Because I haven't, I, I've only heard of one female Hamlet recently, and that was like in Colorado, but that's it's not done very often. And I found that a female Hamlet is actually, it makes, a, you know, all those monologues and the, and the thinking process and, and introspection that Hamlet has, it makes it actually a little bit more credible because, you know, traditionally masculine men don't really like to think before they act, and Hamlet does nothing but think about the ramifications of his actions. And so having someone with a feminine energy, with a more sensitive side, makes it more likely that this character would be really tortured by killing his dad. I mean, (laughs) stepdad. Uncle. Stepdad uncle. Well, everyone dies. Everyone dies. I wouldn't call the play mediocre, so... Mm. Yeah, that, those are not my words. I liked it way more than you did, apparently. Because mm. I I agree with what you're saying, except for the mediocre part. Because, in fact, I like that there's also this element of the playwright also getting to examine what Shakespeare is and what Hamlet is and who gets to do it and why they get to do it. And maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, there's a character in the play who's Sarah Bernhardt's lover slash one of the biggest playwrights in France at the moment. And when Sarah commissions him to rewrite Hamlet for her... Edmund Ronstadt, yes, the playwright. I feel that she was... Uh, Teresa Rebeck was also, through that character, getting to question Shakespeare, which is something that, again, women don't get to do at all. Right. Women don't get to question Shakespeare, but people do question Shakespeare, though. And the whole conceit of the play, I mean, the main struggle of the play is Sarah Bernhardt is doing is like rewriting Hamlet or questioning Shakespeare or questioning Shakespeare's greatness. And that is like one big shocking thing. But actually, because we saw we've been seeing so much of these reimagined Shakespeare's with women playing them, especially, I feel like it was a little bit. It feels a little bit passe now. 
But when you're saying we, you're also saying about, you know, we don't live in the world that Broadway audiences live. This is probably the first time that roundabout subscribers <laughs> have encountered a play of this sort, don't mm -hmm. you think? I mean, because you're talking about things in Colorado and I'm sure you're talking about, you know, off Broadway and off of Broadway productions. But sure. when do we get to see, you know, women playing men on Broadway? King Lear. With that, Glenda Jackson, that's coming this season. That's happening, but yeah, but that's happening next year. So you know, this is in many ways new on Broadway. Having a woman play Hamlet in any permutation on Broadway is new, but I feel like the questions that it's asking aren't new, and so I didn't feel like the urgency of those questions. But then, then again, I take your point that perhaps it is just because I do, I am a more adventurous theater goer. I mean, it's your life. You live and breathe these yeah. kinds of things. Like you write about these kinds of things. But I feel that for like the uh, the people that I saw this play with, like they were shocked. They were shocked yeah. that someone would be right, Hamlet. Yeah. All right. Well, then my 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 actual big issue with the play isn't so much like the examinations of Shakespeare or any of that. It, it was the fact that I didn't really under quite understand the Sarah Bernhardt character, and I didn't quite understand her motivations for for anything just just because as uh, you know and as someone who's i feel like is quite well versed in theater history you know when when you're talking about historical figures and you, and, you, and you're talking about doing like a biopic of one part of their life you you're you're going you're entering like the middle of this person's life and re-examining what makes them think and why they did the way that they did but i actually don't i mean there's so many little details they added in about her life like her having money struggles her having a son who she doesn't maybe see that often her having very many lovers but i actually don't really think all of that added to like answer the question of why is she doing this and why and why does she do it despite the fact that there's so many people telling her not to because she could that's that that's not good that's not good enough when you're talking about like drama well i was there's a like one of the things i've i've read uh sarah bernhardt's autobiography and one of the things that makes her who she was but that she was a great I don't want to say liar, but she she was a great like fabricator of her own like persona. Like her, mm -hmm. have you read her autobiography? No, it makes no sense. And it's kind of you know this thing that you're saying that like, there's like she introduces characters in her life that show up and then they disappear, and you're always like, what's going on? But as one of the characters, I think it's Bernhardt herself in the play says something about like I'm here to charm. Or something like that. And were you charmed through during the play? No, I was charmed by the character. But the thing is, whenever we left the character, I did. I, I feel like we were in a completely different other play. So you missed Bernhardt. Of course, I missed Bernhardt, and I wanted more of her. I did not <laughs> care. That's why. That's what I'm saying. Like I didn't. I didn't really understand her as much as I wish I could have. Because instead of doing a play about you know, about like a very sensitive Sarah Bernhardt who without all the frills without the without the crazy hats and clothes and just getting into the essence of why she did what she did in in an environment that was very antagonistic to women instead where we have like this love story and that's the main conflict like it's so 
it is so traditional, even though it is about this very untraditional woman. Mm-hmm. We have we have like completely different views on yeah, this play. Yeah, maybe. And also, I'm still pissed at the at, at the whole Serrano thing in the back half. Don't spoil the show's deep. I know, but the thing is, you see, <laughs> it's I'm not spoiling the show to say that they re- reenact Serrano, and the thing is, they reenact Serrano and how successful it was, but they don't reenact Hamlet and how successful that Sarah Bernhardt's Hamlet was. Like, it's kind of. The play didn't know what the story was or what the struggle was. And so it manufactured something when it could have just, like, gone with the historical record and just gone deeper. Well, don't spoil what I'm about to uh, suggest. But the play, the final moment in the play wrapped up everything that the play did for me, which is it captured someone that you know, we won't ever get to see perform. She's been dead forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it does that in a beautiful, poetic way. And again, don't spoil it deep. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I thought it was just beautiful. I thought, you know, all the things that you're saying you disliked about it, I didn't not only not see, but I think in many cases, that's where I thought the richness was and how, you know, like how pissed you are at the show is... uh you're bright to be pissed, but I think you're being hard on the character when, you know. No, I'm not being hard on the character. I'm being hard on the playwright for choosing to focus <laughs> a character's motivations on a man and having a man influence her actions when it was very much she she did it because, like you said, she could. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to agree okay. and disagree on this one. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, Okay. I, I, and I thought that entire back half could could have been cut, but you know, whatever's. We'll agree to disagree on that one. If you want to see Bernhard Hamlet and figure it out yourself, what you think? It's playing through November 11th, and tickets are 59 to 159 dollars. Right, I believe Roundabout still has like their young person hip ticks under 25. They discount. do have hip ticks, yeah. Yeah, but for, it under 30. For maybe it's under 30. Yeah, yeah, under 30, you'll get 25 dollar tickets. So check it out if you're interested in theater history. The next play is called The Revolving Cycles, Truly and Steadily Rolled, which marks the playwriting debut of Jonathan Payne, and is currently being produced at the Playwrights Realm. Uh, The story is about a young 14-year-old girl named Karma who goes on a journey to find her missing foster brother. And all of the barriers she encounters throughout that keeps young black men and women like herself poor and uncared for. Basically, systemic racism in a play for two hours. And 15 minutes. And 15 minutes. Oh, man. You know... It's like I'm talking about this like on the day after the Kavanaugh hearing, and I'm just like, why is everything so depressing, Jose? I don't know. At least we have c- coffee, I guess. I don't know. At least we have coffee. And the thing is, it's it, no, this was a play I came in really wanting to like because it's very much a, yes, there is a problem. Kids who live in the inner cities of any city who live in predominantly black neighborhoods, they are uncared for, under-resourced, and undervalued. That is true. And there's so many reasons 
for why this is, and the reasons are presented in this play. And yet, and yet, I fe- I came out of it feeling like there's something else that I wanted from this, and I I still can't quite figure out what it is. So is that the theme for your reactions to all the shows today? Yes, like something else that you wanted that it didn't give you. Yes, I think invest. for me this play was I wanted to because of the subject matter. It's so depressing as is. I wanted to connect to the characters emotionally and the play was so theatrical and it was so, you know, it was such like a play and it did so many different things in terms of the storytelling and like, you know, like they broke the fourth wall and it was just like, mm-hmm. it was a lot. And I felt that I was, they were, they were trying to impress me with craft more than they were trying to move me. And there were moments in the play where I was like, this is pretty fucking cool. But not for one moment did I care what happened to to karma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even things like that, which are, I know this is satire. And, Mm -hmm. but even something like calling your lead character karma and then like, you know, like having her do like karma related stuff. It's like two on the nose. Right. Like I enjoyed I forgot the name of the the actress, but I loved mm. the women who played like the evil Mrs. Hannigan kind of figure. Oh, uh, Linda Gravatt. Yes, she plays a character called Madame Profi, but all the characters pronounce it Profit, and you know, like we get it. You know what I mean? Like we don't, you know. And that's a recurring joke. Like every scene she's in, someone calls mm-hmm. her Profit, and I'm like, we got it the first time. Yeah, and like I felt like the play like hits you yeah with like a giant hammer over the head constantly and it it exhausted me really um yeah it exhausted me and i i wasn't as much exhausted as i was like emotionally disengaged mm-hmm. and that is very dangerous when because because i feel like i'm mimicking the systemic oppression that that keeps you know yeah like uh, poor people of color down uh the one thing that i'll say about this play was that it made me think and it was one of those moments where i was Mm -hmm. like this is you know like it was one of those carrot moments of brilliance that i saw and i again i won't spoil it but there's a moment where a gunshot becomes indistinguishable from the sound of fireworks Mm mm-hmm and it made me think of when I was little, where I grew up, you know, on New Year's Eve, people would go out on the streets and like, you know, like do like firecrackers and like fireworks and stuff. But also people would come out with their guns and just like shoot the sky, like, you know, like shoot mm-hmm. the moon. So on New Year's Eve, when we were little, you know, grown ups in my home country would have the children sleep not near a window because there were many cases where like a child had been sleeping and some you know like errant bullet had come in and killed the child so this show reminded me of that and that's something that i hadn't thought about in a very long time and it's a moment that obviously for personal reasons i found to be very powerful and i wish the play had had more moments like that rather than all the brechtian like nonsense that it was giving me Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I think what I'm trying, yeah, I think what I'm trying to articulate is like, 
you, you know, like the rules of good drama is is like you have a it's like you're going up a hill and there's and there's a peak action and then you have a day and then a day then you want slash catharsis and I feel like we we ended at the peak with that moment that you were talking about and there was no just nothing was resolved it and was I know like catharsis. in life nothing is resolved but if I wanted to but then that means like this theatrical experience is nothing is is no different than like any uh, anything that you could read on Mother Jones and, or New York Times. It's just ble- it is bleak with some really good actors. Well, we saw this play together, and after we saw it, I went to the gym, mm-hmm. and the gym helped me. <laughs> yeah, because this play, I mean, I guess it's kind of like. Uh, what do you call it? A trigger warning. Trigger warning. Yeah, this play will probably leave you very anxious. Just mm-hmm. keep that in mind. There's no catharsis. You'll leave the theater like on edge. Yes. So bring some cigarettes. Bring some chocolate. Yeah. Bring some whiskey. Bring or some weed. Go to the gym. <laughs> oh, I but I do actually want to shout out the design because I really loved the set design and the lighting. So good job, Kimi Nishikawa, Stacy DeRosia. And anyone else you want to shout out on the design team? Because Oh, and Lukeman Brown for sound design. Because you know what? Even though the content of the play was a real bummer for me, <laughs> it was really good to look at. It was smart and simple. And yep, applause to the design team. And applause for the artist. Wish it came together better. Revolving Cycles is playing through October 6th, and it's 45 to $67. Yes, let's move on to another crowd pleaser. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of systemic racism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, believe us, we're laughing just to keep from crying right now. We mean no disrespect exactly. by laughing. It's just like, oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. For our final show, uh, Harlem Stage and Theater of War Productions is currently presenting Antigone in Ferguson, a free performance where actors, an, a, a rotating cast of actors, reads an hour-long adaptation of Antigone, translated and directed by Brian Dorries. And then for the next 90 minutes, the community talks about the play and and how it relates to the subjects of police brutality and setting up to injustice with Ferguson as the jumping off point. And I feel like it's like I this isn't so much going to be a review of like whether or not this the performances were good. It's a reading. Yeah. But who did you get? Who was cuz one of the things that I think mm. is really cool is that this production is completely free. Mhm. And one of the draws was that they have you know, stage, movie, and television stars in a rotating cast. So they have people like Tamara Tooney and Paul Giamatti mm-hmm. and Samira Wiley. And, and Mr. Big from Sex and the City. Yes, and Tate Donovan. So I think that's pretty cool. So who, do you, yeah. who, do you, who did you see? Uh, I saw Tamara Tooney as Antigone and Tate Donovan as Creon. Oh, and Chris Myers of uh, Octoroon as Haymond. So, so we had the same cast. Oh, we had the same yeah. cast. Okay, boring. Let's move on. Okay, I know, right? I, Samara Rye Wiley starts, was doing it this week, but neither of us were there because we had to tape this show. But I, I wanted to ask you, Jose, about like, what did you think? I mean, what, what was the conversations like when you were in the room and the night that you went? 
well, I was exhausted, so I left. I didn't know that the conversation was part of the performance, and I did not schedule two and a half hours to be there. I scheduled one hour. So what I sat through was like maybe 20 minutes of the uh, conversation, and people were rightfully angry. There was a member of the uh, police force of New York, the New York mm -hmm. Police Department, because they call... You know, like they pre-select people from the audience, I guess, to be like the moderators of the, or something like that. Like they're, like, they're not the moderators. What's the right response? Yeah. But you know, like they pick people from the audience to be at the center and be like the icebreakers in a way to talk about their feelings once they see that. Mm -hmm. One of them was a cop. He was an African-American man. And then someone from the audience stood up and started yelling that, she thought this show was an offense to Michael Brown's memory because they had a cop talking, you know, about the show. Wow. So it got very confrontational, very fast. And it made me uncomfortable, not because of the uh, anger and all that, because I think it's, again, it's coming from a very rightful place. And we have, you know, we should be angry at everything that's going on. But I felt that what bothered me about the way this was structured was precisely the lack of structure. It felt threatening. It felt like at any moment someone could, you know, like pretty much shoot someone else. Someone could like throw a chair at someone. And uh, it bothered me that there was no, you know, like it was just like throwing people into like a cockfight and like, let's see how this goes. And, you know, people were yelling, people were like, some people were crying, some people were applauding this person who was so offended at the cop. But then this police officer who was there, who I hope had, you know, the best intentions, he was on himself. You know what I mean? Like, he was not being paid to be there. He was not a cast member. So I, I don't, I, I didn't appreciate the people who put on this show putting someone like this on the spotlight and just letting people like attack him, you know, like in free form. I didn't think it was fair to this officer who, you know, I don't know. All right. Interesting. Because like the night that I went, like Michael Brown senior was there and like, and the conversation turned to the, um, the perception that the Black Lives Matter movement is anti-cop, and he very he was very frank in saying like there are good cops out there, but we just want the bad ones to be held accountable for their actions. Of course, as they should be. And so it's just so interesting that even the person who was shouting didn't seem to think that there was like nuance in like the cop versus black people conversation. No, this person just flat out thought that any police member being involved was you know, disrespectful to Michael Brown's memory. And this person has a right to their opinion. No, yeah, everyone has a right to their opinion. Yeah. That's why it's like an open forum. Right. It's like, like there's what I really loved about the, about the presentation of this was the music. And it was like a reading and it was like a reading, but like it interspersed with that were like original songs composed by Phil Woodmore with a choir that was a mix of community members from Ferguson, Ferguson police officers and the actors in the show. And it was just, 
it was such a powerful, like almost cathartic moment of just like seeing this terrible thing happen. And then afterwards, like there was music and you just release all the emotions because you're applauding and it feels and it's uplifting seeing these wonderful, these wonderful singers like singing this about Greek tragedy, but in like a very gospel way. And so it was like this wonderful crossover of like ancient Greek tragedy and contemporary gospel tradition, which should be done more often because, oh my God, how come, how come no, not many, pe- many people have made that correlation? It was wonderful. It was exhilarating. Yeah. It was like being invited to the black church. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. Would you say that it's not fair? Because, you know, like obviously the, the, the mission behind this entire thing is, you know, dialogue and conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But would you say it's fair not to even give people the opportunity to leave if they wanted to once the, you know, quote unquote performance is over. Once the official performance is over, I think there should have been a moment where people should have been invited to stay if they wanted to, but instead they just like, you know, like plow through the thing mm-hmm. and people are like, can I even leave? And I think for a conversation like this, you need to want to be there and not giving the audience the opportunity to make that choice is unfair. Right. Though I did see people leave. And so I guess it's it's more like, are they comfortable with going against the grain? But I actually didn't have that much issue with them not allowing people to leave. It was more of the issue of like facilitating these kind of dialogues. It's real hard and and emotions get heated. You, you do the audience a disservice when you facilitate the dialogue and don't actually acknowledge the things that people are saying. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the way that the facilitators were doing it was just asking a broad question, just giving people the microphone, just passing it around like that instead of just saying, instead of taking what they were saying and, you know, do it being like the minister to this congregation and being like, I hear, I, I hear your pain. And I think like what we can all learn from this experience is X, Y, Z, or this is what I'm hearing. And what do we all think of this? Like, I that it's one of the reasons why I dislike going to talk back so much is because like most of the time it's just people just throwing things verbally <laughs> and nothing happens like you don't leave with any sense of well I learned something tonight is very much well that was an interesting thing that just happened yeah so the minister thing is perfect that's exactly what but this needed I, mm-hmm. yep but I but go only because the music. I don't get to go to black church very often. I don't get to go to any church very often. <laughs> and you know what? I want to go more. This is wonderful. This is the kind of church that we all should have. Yes. And do not be, do not feel like you're forced to stay if you don't want to. Exactly. If it gets triggering and if it gets to be too much, p- people should be given permission to do what they need to do. Yeah. And take a breather. And speaking of breathers, it's time to go to our very uplifting interview with Daphne Rubin Vega and Giselle Jimenez, who played mother and daughter in Misty Like Hell, which we both loved, right? We both loved it. It played early this year at the Public Theater, uh, a new musical by Kiara Hudez, Pulitzer winner, and Erin McCune, who who is a singer-songwriter who is making her musical theater debut. And it was wonderful. We cried a little bit. 
And then we cried a little bit while we're interviewing these ladies about releasing the cast album, which is currently out now from Ghostlight Records slash Shikaboom. So first, a snippet from Miss You Like Hell, and then we'll get to the interview. Enjoy. You are a lioness. You are a warrior. I am a lioness. When fate is a wicked son of a bitch Pulls a trick out her ass and gives you the switch When you're begging for mercy and praying for grace Baby, that's when you fight, that's the time and place We are animals Daphne Duzel, thank you so much for joining us I am not lying when I'm telling you that You know, one of the happiest moments this year for me Has been, besides seeing the show when I found out that the cast recording was happening because the show needs to be out there and people need to hear it. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. What does that mean for, for you, you know, like knowing that the show will get to live beyond the weeks that people got to see it at the public? Well, everything. <laughs> Do you know? I mean, I, I spent four years uh, working on this project and Kiara, Lear... Danny, Iraq spent more. I mean, you know, Iraq and Kiara spent seven years mm. working mm -hmm. on it. So, um, so yeah, it's good that it's going to take another life. It's like, you know, I just before we started rolling, you said, I, I wanted to say that I just woke up like very recently. I mean, it's been a couple of months now. It's been like five or six months. And um, it's only taken me like three months ago. I said, what happened? You know, mm -hmm. how did how did that happen mm -hmm. in such a way? Um, so so it's good to have a chronicle about that, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's so important because, number one, we have a cast album with two female leads that are not only, not only are they female leads, but they're Latinas. And that does not happen. <laughs> and I'm so proud of that. And yet, as yeah, yet. And as this, you know, this this album gets released, I'm excited for the new generation to hear this and to be able to say, "Wow, I don't have to be Caucasian to sound this way. I don't have to be this to be this way." Like, you know, to, to open up that idea that they can. To know your advantage is that you're who you are. Yeah. Who you are singing that song. That's your advantage. Yeah. That's a very visceral experience of what we're doing. Yeah. One of the things I loved about the show when I saw it was, yes, it's a story about a mother and a daughter on a road trip. And there's stuff in there about DACA and about undocumented immigrants. But there's also a lot of joy. And I think... Well, so often with these stories, like you're so bogged down in the sadness and the tragedy of it. But what was it like for the two of you just trying to, you know, balance those those two emotions? I think for Olivia, like she in this whole road trip that her mom takes her on, she's building family with people who aren't related to her by blood. And these fam these little families that she's making connections with, these friendships that she's creating because of her mother, I think that's also a part of the story. That, you know, family can be what you make it. 
hopefully, you know, that will paint more of a picture saying that, like, it doesn't matter where you come from. It matters who you are and, and your soul connection, your tribe connection, which Daphne created that whole, <laughs> that whole notion. The soul tribe. The soul tribe. Because we all look different, you know. She called thinking, us that. Do you know, <clears throat> if you were to imagine your tribe, if you were to close your eyes and imagine what your tribe is in the most soulful way, like, would they necessarily have to look like you? Like, what is it that makes them your tribe? You know, what kind of ingredients in here? So we were so yeah. tribe. And, and, and when she said that, we were all like, <gasps> I love how your voices come through in the, the cash recording. Like, your voice, you know, like, I, would, I was listening to a bibliography, and I felt like it was my mind singing that song. And your songs is a fuego mujer in my ears. Wow! <laughs> so on stage, you know, on stage, like every night, you you can be like, okay, I didn't, I didn't love how I did this the previous night, so I can change this tomorrow. Yeah. So what's it like to go into the recording booth knowing that this is, you know, the uh, ultimate version of the song, so to speak? Yeah. Until it gets to the next stage, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, for me, I had to continue to think uh, less is more because like when I'm on stage, I'm projecting and I'm, I'm in the moment and I'm acting, which I did act in the studio. But because there's so many other uh, elements involved when you're in a recording studio, like they can make you sound like so awesome without you having to really um, put so much effort in as opposed to like see, singing live. Um, on a stage. I have to try not to hold on too tight to what I think perfection is or, you know, demoitis, which is, <laughs> you know, the demo in my head about how it should be. It should be. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it becomes what it is. Yeah. Uh, and then letting it go is yeah. like the big meditation for me. Just, okay, it's done. And it's out of my hands, you know? Yeah. The album is the best gift because not only do we get to like let it go but it gets to you know be in your ears and the people who never got to hear it get to hear it yeah you know and get to like really it's a little bird it. and own it like own mm -hmm. it take it to your pueblo take it to your town and like make it happen bon fuego yeah, <laughs> yeah for real what did you learn from each other from like your different life experiences uh, <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I've told her this before numerous amounts of times, um, Daphne Rubin Vega is the best scene partner I've ever had. And I think probably the best scene partner I ever will have because, <laughs> because she, her and I came into this process with our wrists bare and our souls completely opened and we trusted each other. And we completely, yeah, we bared our souls to each other. We were not afraid. We both were fearless in this process and that that allowed magic to happen. For for many people, you know, um, I'm thinking about my nieces, for instance, this is probably going to be the first time that they listen to Latinas singing, you know, on a musical, like, you know, leading a musical. Can you talk about the first time that you saw or heard yourselves represented in the larger media? Um, I think uh, 
As far as um, doing a role that isn't isn't like um, generalized, like. Oh, can you be can you be more Sofia Vergara? Can you be more Rosie Perez? Like when it's like when someone's trying to like put you in a hole as a character. Get Sofia um, Vergara. Get fucking Rosie, then. Get her number. <laughs> but like um, the first time that I was able to experience that was um, by the beautiful permission of Liesl Tommy when she cast me as Princess Anna in Frozen at the mm -hmm. Hyperion Theater, and never in the history of of Disney have they ever allowed um, somebody of color to play a cartoon <laughs> that's and that's that's the that's the real thing because it's like they're not real people <laughs> so they play a cartoon and 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 uh, in that process, the the producers came to me and was like, let us know if you get hate mail. Like, they were very scared about this being released. And and they were just, like, worried about me. And it made me nervous. Cause I was like, oh, my God. Like, people are going to send me hate mail? Like, I don't want to experience that. Like, I'm just doing a show. Like, it shouldn't be that. Which is to say, even if you're good, like, as good as good can be good. Yeah. Or better than good. The, yeah. Then really be careful. Well, yeah, yeah. but then, but then when when I opened the park, like, I got so much um, love from every ethnicity, and people were so like, oh my god, all my life, like these freaking kids were like, all my life, I wanted to be a princess, and I got made fun of in school, and and people told me I couldn't be a princess, and it's like, and it's something such a, it's such a. Like in the spectrum of the grand scheme of things, it's such a little thing. But when when kids feel something, it means a lot, and so it matters to them. And for them to see themselves on that stage means so much to me. Don't ever believe that shit. Yeah, like you can you can do that, and and um, you know again doing doing Kate Monster in Avenue Q. That show off Broadway has been on for fifteen years, and they've never had an ethnic. Kate Monster cast in the role. She's I'm a puppet. The, I'm the first, but she's a puppet. She's a puppet. She was like made through like through like yarn and stuff. Like it's not a human. And is, and is your yarn different? <laughs> I bet your My yarn, yarn is. got swag. <laughs> Daphne, you're an immigrant. And Giselle, are you? I'm. Uh, I was born in America. Oh, my mother right. and father were born in Cuba. Right, so like, but we both have like that duality of existence yeah. where at home you're one thing and outside to the rest of the world you're something else. Yes. And so, <laughs> in in doing in doing, and isn't there an otherness yes. in both places? Exactly. Right. There's an otherness in both places because like, where you know when you go back to where your parents came from, mm -hmm. it's like uh, you're a geringa, <laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> But, well, leave uh, it to society to try to fit you in some kind of like, like this is the title that you belong in. It's like, but but life isn't black and white. So why do I have to be in that that little tiny crevice? I like to think of the cash recording. Every time I listen to it, I like to think of it as a tamal. Oh, God, uh, I was just thinking of that. Unwrap it. And I kind of know what I'm going to find, but there's always like a little extra kick. And, you know, uh, can you talk about what makes the perfect tamale. <laughs> wow, I've made tamales like maybe once or twice in my life. 
every time. We never actually made the tamales. We always threatened to, but we were too busy making a show to make tamales, you know, like for the real. Um, I I like capers y aceituna, mm. you know, like aceituna con pimento y un poco de caper. Um, I like the uh, banana leaf. Sorry, corn leaf. <laughs> Gotta be banana. Yeah. Um, oja, oja, oja de banana. The um, platano, the big ones. Um, and also, like, well, you know how I had, I had a, I had a thing that just bothered me about the tamale book because <laughs> in the show, like, they had us like, oh my god, like yogurt. <laughs> and that is not the way That's you eat because a tamale. you didn't want to eat a real tamale because you have you have lactose intolerance. Well, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> it's because the ones that they got that they make here are spicy. And there's, what I was saying was that for singing, it doesn't make sense to eat spicy because you can get the reflux and then you can burn the throat. Ay, que diva. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, back in the day. Come on, <laughs> let's, let's go. Kinds of condition. I'm just sensitive. That's all. I'm away. Wow, Trader Joe's. But anyway, yeah. my to have like Jeezy's. Like, my whole thing was like, all right, let's open the leaf, get a fork, like let's eat it the way that people eat it. But you know, anyway, that, that was that was song my thing. was almost cut from the show. That because of, because of my <laughs> because of my injury, couldn't stop like, with the fucking tamales. I was like, out. why can't? Why are we squeezing these things? This is not how you eat it. Like it was just boggling my mind. You know, but, if somebody's like, wow. Eso no es auténtico latino. <laughs> then something else is really wrong. <laughs> Daphne, Giselle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Miss You Like Hell is out on streaming and digital on October 5th. And I'm crossing my fingers that it's going to be back in some stage, either on Broadway or anywhere over the world very soon. So thank <laughs> yes. you again. Monarch butterflies take the A train. Moby Dick swims the Great Plains. Kitty Hawk decides to bike it. The world is upside down, and I like it. I used to read to escape, to be anywhere but here. Now I'm here. I used to read to run away, so I could disappear. Now I'm here. Here I am. I think this is the, the one time doing an interview in all the months that we've been doing this show where I just let, like, where we just let time, like, flow and, like, fly and they kept talking and we were loving it. And then we ended up, like, a lot of footage. And we hope you'll watch the video version of this on our web series on American Theater or on Facebook. Yeah, because you just see the body language between the two of them. They acted like they're mother and daughter. So cute. I want to be a part of that family. So cute. Like, can Daphne Ruben Vega adopt me? And me. <laughs> she probably would not be happy about that. But for today's 11 o'clock number, we wanted to riff on Kiara Hudez's article 
that came out in American theater about why she's taking a break from theater. And mostly because, in short, she's tired of writing about Latinx characters for mostly white audiences who have preconceptions about what drama should be and what what characters of colors should do. And that feeling of always, you know, rolling the stone up the hill and never knowing if you're ever gonna you'll be able to relax and just do your art without having to defend yourself all the time. And for me, as someone who doesn't do theater, but who does do journalism, which is similarly very white, and most of the time I feel like I'm rolling the stone up the hill, it it, it, it really resonated for me. And so I wanted to talk about that. We ended up unexpectedly having like a second half of the show being Miss You Like Hell inspired. Mm-hmm. And it all comes together. And you know what? Especially because this may be like the the biggest thing we get from Kiara who does in theater for a while until she does the In the Heights movie. And good for her that she's going to Hollywood. If Hollywood wants her, go to Hollywood. Exactly. Yes. Bravo. Yes. Thank you for your service <laughs> to the theater. Yes. And I mean, I don't know. What am I going to say? I don't blame her. Yeah. Why not? Because of the reasons well, you just said, I'm, I feel the same way. I, I was sitting in line this morning. I'm covering the New York Film Festival because I also write about movies. And I was sitting this morning in line waiting to go into my screening. And they have a two-badge system to go into the press screenings for the New York Film Festival. One of them is a VIP badge. And one of them is you morals, you know, like the rest of like the peasants badge, yes. right? I have a peasant badge. And looking at the line for the VIP people this morning, I counted 18 people in line. One of them was a person of color and the other 17 were all white people. Mm-hmm. And you just look at that and then you look at the other line with, you know, black people, Latinx people, Asian people. You know, it was all the rest of us there. Mm-hmm. And it's that's what this world is. And it's the same on film. It's the same in, I'm sure it's the same in music, it's the same in television, it's the same in theater. It's the same. It's exhausting. Right. Well, it was interesting because I was reading Kiara's piece, like, as the uh, Kavanaugh hearings were happening. And it occurred to me, like, there's, like, all the allowances, like, women and people of color and just non-white men make like in all the ways that we compromise ourselves in order to make other people feel better or feel more comfortable like dr christine ford watching her do like just save you know apologizing for talking about her own trauma and trying to make those men on the benches feel better it just it just occurred to me it just brought up for me like all of the ways that we like put an asterisk next to our own existence, it was like, you know, I'll give an example of, of it. It's very small, but um, uh, I like the way I, I say my own name for white people is not actually the way my name is actually pronounced. The reason that I pronounce my name the way that I did, I do was because when I was growing up, that was just like the default way people would do it. And I never felt comfortable explaining it to them. Everyone always made fun of me every time they got to my name on the roll call list. 
I one day I just decided I'm not dealing with this. I'll just settle. I'll just settle for this, and hopefully they'll go back to like not calling on me for things. Well, this should be your Kelly Marie trends. Oh like, yeah. What's her? What's her? Luang. I don't know how to pronounce that. Exactly. Luang. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think this should be your Luang Tran moment because I've never heard the way you pronounce your name. Like, who are you? Do it, do it. Like, don't stop putting the asterisk there. I'm gonna be happy to call you by your actual name. So, do it.、Uh, yeah. So, like,、uh, but it's just an example. Like, my name is Yip Jung. That's actually that's how you pronounce it. But the thing, but what I'm, but what, what I'm like trying to say though is. I think it's all of it. It's like it's it's microaggressions. It's just the tiny ways that you, the things you choose to not talk about, be, and so then it, it makes me think like, how long is this sustainable, and what is the breaking point for this? I mean, obviously the breaking point for Kiara Hudes was very recently, and she is taking a break from the industry. Do you think like it's safe now to like live a more authentic existence? Thank you for listening to us. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I say, go places, be you, and be you as loud as you can be. I don't think there should be more, more of that bullshit. Like we, we let people get away with a lot. It's enough. You,、mm-hmm. It's been enough. Like I think it's moment for all of us to like draw the line. Yeah. And say, you know, like we've, it's just enough. We've had enough, right? And it's time to just actually talk about the fact that we are losing talented people because we don't treat the people like marginalized people well in in any of these industries, and we're losing playwrights to film and television,、mm-hmm. and we're losing actors, we're losing like young theater journalists because they realize that they can probably, you know, go. Do something else with their lives instead of trying to instead of fighting for very few bylines, and so we don't need the industry. Like the industry needs us in order to stay relevant, and so it really it needs it needs to do something about the fact that there is no sustainability here. Okay, that was yeah cheerful. I know, right? Well, go listen to our podcast. Subscribe to us on YouTube. And we promise you jokes next episode, right? Yes, we right? will figure out happier shows. Thank you. Thank you, and you know, take some friends to the theater. It's more fun that way. Yes. All right. Bye. Adios.